Hi, I'm your host, Lillian Yang. And I'm your host, Fakri Shafai. And you are listening to Food Nonfiction, the incredible true stories behind food. Last episode, we talked about the turnspit dog, a breed of dog used to power turnspits for roasting meat, largely during the Tudor period in England. It was a fascinating story. But there were so many more interesting things about Tudor period kitchens that we decided to dedicate another episode to that period. We're focusing on food in wealthy households, particularly the royal household, and even more particularly, the household of King Henry VIII. Now, why are we focusing on the royal household? It's because that's where the action was. Back then, you didn't have star food critics telling you where to eat, or popular food blogs setting new food trends. Instead, you had royalty and the wealthy setting the trends. We called up Peter Breers, who wrote the book Cooking and Dining in Tudor and Early Stuart England. Uh, yes, my name is Peter Breers. I'm a professional food historian. Uh, my background is in museums. What's special about Mr. Breers' background is that he has actually lived in Hampton Court Palace and worked in Henry VIII's kitchen. Yes, that was a really interesting experience. No one had been into the kitchens to, to actually cook since the 1730s when the court moved out. And we were actually allowed into the kitchen at 8 o'clock in the morning uh, to have it fully operational uh, by 9.30. Not a lot of time, not when we got to set up charcoal stoves and get, get fires going and whatever. He was asked by the Historic Royal Palaces Agency to get the kitchen going and use it like it had been used in the 1530s. So that would have been during King Henry VIII's reign. Having a palace kitchen uh, to experiment with is a, a unique opportunity. It's the only way you can actually uh, be allowed to find out how roasting fires work, how to cook over charcoal stoves, uh, how the whole thing comes together. The original buildings were built by people who really knew what they were doing and by occupying the same spaces it was the only way you could really absorb what they were about something you could never do in the same way if you were working academically from just sets of bare records and, and plans so mr breer's account of cooking in the tudor period is the real deal there are things you just can't know without experiencing it Actually, working in the building was really educational because uh, it was designed by people who knew how it was to work. And once you're actually walking around it, carrying things, opening doors, whatever, you suddenly see why doors were in that position, why fireplaces were in that position, how the layout of the rooms worked. There were two reasons why this was a time of food exploration. First of all, the food rules or conventions had not yet been established bacon and cream, fruit and onion, you could combine things that didn't go together quite as easily as, say, cheese and bread would. And the recipes were written quite differently than what we're used to today. Recipes often left out the details, like how long to cook something for or how much of an ingredient to add. This was because recipes assumed that if you were cooking, then you were probably an experienced cook. Remember that cooking was a job not a hobby. I think most people can remember their grannies or their aunties who could cook without really using scales. They just knew how to do it. And if you've got that kind of knowledge, it means you can 
uh, put in the quantities which are missing, etc., etc., in the early recipes, uh, because the early recipes were not written down for amateur cooks, uh, but they're really an aid memoir for professionals who'd been brought up uh, through an apprenticeship uh, system. Now, for the second, more important reason that led to food exploration, the dissolution of the monasteries. Henry VIII, his father had taken the throne in battle. Uh, Henry knew that unless he actually produced a son, uh, then that was going to be virtually the end of his line, which is the last thing he wanted. So he had to do uh, various things to try and get uh, new wives and uh, more children. So... Basically, Henry VIII wanted a son to take the throne after him. But since his only surviving child with his wife was a daughter, he wanted to get his marriage annulled so he could take on a different wife. The Pope refused. Eventually, Henry VIII broke from the church, disbanded all the monasteries, and took the land. As a byproduct of that, uh, he instituted an enormous social revolution. Huge areas of England were owned by the church. By closing down the monasteries, he privatized all that land, built up a new uh, mercantile class, and without that, uh, we wouldn't have had a British empire. So much of the land was sold to the rich. This had a trickling-down effect. Some of the buyers turned around and sold smaller pieces of their land, and those buyers turned around and sold smaller pieces of their land. So you could have buyers that were lower down on the social scale. With the new land available, some people expanded their business ventures, and some people started new business ventures. It was sort of an economic boost that led to people having the extra money to spend on luxuries. People updated their homes with the best materials, and they outfitted their kitchens with the latest in kitchen technology. Soon, the old cooking traditions were pushed out, and recipes from other parts of the world were adopted. This included recipes from places like France, Italy, Germany, Holland, and Turkey. The Tudor period also saw the decline of the feudal system. In England, feudalism had shaped the social structure with a clear hierarchy established around landholding. I say landholding instead of land-owning because only the king owned land. Higher-up families had lots of staff working for them. And because the social structure was largely fixed, Families and their staff developed strong ties generation after generation. For example, if someone was working for your family, then it's likely that their parents had also worked for your family, and their grandparents too, and their great-grandparents, and so on. So you would then have the responsibility of employing their kids, and their grandkids, and their great-grandkids, and so on. The newly rich of this period did not feel such responsibilities towards staff members, because no multi-generational ties had been established, so they tended not to employ as many people. The new men who were making their money from monastic lands and from business enterprises were not like the old aristocracy. They didn't want any of this because it cost money, and they wanted to spend money on themselves. (laughs) And they would cut down on all unnecessary expenditure in the way of, of additional staff. They didn't need a retinue to... Uh, maintain their power. This had an effect on hospitality. With less staff, there were simply less people to provide services and prepare food or drink. And it wasn't just the quantity of staff that had changed, but also the quality. 
Previous staff members had multi-generational ties to their employers, so they were loyal and well brought up. A lot of the duties left behind by the decrease in staff went to wives. Aside from more management duties, they also took on the preparation of high-quality dishes. It wasn't just upper-class wives filling the roles left behind by the loss of gentlemanly staff, but women in general started taking on roles in the kitchen. For example, we see the earliest known records of female cooks in England in the 1500s. Another change in this period was an increase in fresh produce. Market gardens were established, and a wide variety of produce became available. But we should note that people didn't like to eat these things raw. Salads had a bad reputation. The health manual say that if you give your sovereign salads, that they will make him sick. This is why virtually everything was cooked. And when you think of the quality of the water of the period, that's from the reason why. It's not the salads which are going to make you sick, but if you have uh, uncooked vegetables uh, which have just been rinsed in water, which is probably toxic, it is going to make you ill. This is why people never drank water. Uh, this is why everyone drank ale, because it, that had been brewed and boiled and was sterile. As for what meats they ate, the only important change at this time was the introduction of turkey, probably starting in the 1520s. Turkey largely replaced peacock in this period. A lot of different birds were eaten, including swans and seagulls. Interestingly, seagulls were fattened for some time in poultry yards after being caught, because this got rid of the fishy flavor from their diet in the wild. Most people that had a professional career in kitchens started work as children, getting paid one to two pounds a year plus free food. Kitchen boys, and they were all boys, could be promoted from turnspit to groom to yeoman to sergeant cook. These all worked under the master cook. The master cook was hands-on, but also highly executive. Uh, the master cook would be the, the equivalent of a major celebrity chef of today. But uh, working for a royal household, you had much more power and influence, uh, and also a lot of responsibility. Unlike today, they didn't have the benefits of refrigeration, tinned food or anything like that, or of gas or electricity supplies. So his responsibility meant that he'd got to ensure that everything worked. This is an enormous task when you're feeding something like uh, a thousand people a day. Above the master cook was the clerk of the kitchen. Uh, yes, you start off with the clerk of the kitchen, who's in charge of the entire administration. And... Uh, we know from records and from paintings of slightly later ones, he dressed like a courtier, gold rings, you know, expensive clothing, etc., etc. Then he would have departments below him, including uh, an accounts department uh, sited over the, the entrance of the building so you could see everything coming and going and where you could make all the, uh, the payments uh, and check out all the details. And then you would have... Uh, various departments. There was a department for everything. The woodyard dealt with fuel. The scullery dealt with utensils. The buttery, surprisingly, not dealing with butter, but instead dealt with beer. The cellar dealt with wine. The pantry dealt with bread. And you had the poultry, the pastry, the kitchen, and the saucery. 
all different departments supervised by the clerk of the kitchen. It's no wonder he was well paid. It was a big job. In the year 1539, the modern equivalent of 7 million pounds was used to provide food for the royal household. That's over 8 million US dollars. The staff working in wealthy homes got perquisites. If you abbreviate the word perquisite, you get the word perk, which is exactly what perquisites are. Perquisites were the perks you were promised as a staff member. If you worked in the boiling house, you could catch and keep the delicious juices dripping from roasting meats. If you served the food, you could keep the meats that people didn't eat. These were called unbroken meats. You could even make money off of your perquisites. For example, if you worked in the royal household and you got to keep untouched meat dishes, you could sell them. Lots of people visiting the court were not fed on the king's dime, so they had to buy food. A lot of things about cooking and dining in the Tudor period surprised me. It's not like how Hollywood portrays it in movies, like the scenes where people are biting off large chunks of meat then throwing the bones over their shoulders and swigging lots of alcohol. That's not correct. I still wince when I see actors uh, of that period uh, sticking food on the ends of their knives and putting it into their mouths, throwing food around, behaving in a way which you never would behave. A great banquet, uh, just as a state banquets are today, is a way you show off your, your taste, uh, your manners, and your breeding. Uh, certainly not uh, the manners of the pigsty. So what would the dining have really looked like? Uh, at the top level, it is incredibly formal. For example, if a lord or king wanted a drink, he would catch the eye of a cupbearer. Part of the cupbearer's job was to make sure the wine had not been poisoned by drinking it himself. First, the cupbearer would pour wine into a cup with a cover. He would then bring this over to the table, kneeling before it, and then take the cover off the cup to pour a few drops into it to drink himself to check that it's okay for the lord or king to drink. Then he'd wipe the rim of the cup with a napkin. Then, finally, he'd give it to the lord or king, who would then take a sip, then pass it back. And then the whole thing would happen throughout the meal, whenever he wanted to drink, and it's that kind of detail all the way through. Uh, people were brought up in these traditions. You were instructed, if you were in a well-to-do family, at exactly how to behave, because if you didn't, that showed you were an imposter and not up to the mark. Another complete surprise was that kitchens were freezing cold in some parts, while of course really hot anywhere near a fire. In fact, sometimes there were indoor snowstorms, even with clear skies outside. I can remember on one January day, it was a clear sky outside, and about midday, a flurry of snow came down in the kitchen. We had some American visitors in, and they said, excuse me, sir, can you tell us what this is? Snow. But it's not snowing outside, sir. Uh, no. But if you look, you'll see the uh, heat and the, the steam from the pots going up into the roof space, being frozen, and then falling as snow. It's so cold in the kitchens because although the big fires, they pull in so much cold air from outside that they, it actually reduces the temperature in the main area of the kitchens. We have to have snowstorms inside. Finally... Hollywood got something wrong that maybe they did on purpose. Until Henry VIII brought in the regulation that kitchen staff had to wear clothes, 
Many of them worked naked, but you don't see that in the movies. That is so unsanitary. It's true. It's so gross. I was more worried about their body parts. <laughs> so, Thackeray, it's been another month. I know, crazy. Happy <laughs> belated birthday. Thank you. It was, it was uneventful, but very calm. Which is exactly what you need when you're in the middle of a PhD program. That's true. And I wonder if you've noticed my arm. I did not notice because you were wearing long sleeves. What happened to your arm? I actually, right in the beginning of February, the first week, I fell in the slush and did severe damage to my tendons. Oh no! You guys can't see this, but her entire arm is wrapped in a bandage. The worst is when I type, it feels like I'm dragging my finger through mud. Like this finger right here. For uh, happier stories, how is your month? Uh, it's been pretty good. We decided that, um, I've gotten some interesting results on my research, so we decided to push my graduation back a little bit to give us a chance to do something very complicated called a cluster analysis, which hopefully I'll figure out how to do that soon. We all want to hear what a cluster analysis (laughs) is. Yeah, I'm sure everybody's on the edge of their seats. So that means that I will be postponing my graduation a bit, but I'm still starting my postdoc in the fall. So I was going to travel a lot more than I will be now. Oh, no. (laughs) Where were you thinking of traveling? Um, Well, I'm still going to be going to Colorado for a while and Europe for a while. Or, sorry. I'm still going to be going to Colorado and California for a while, but I'm going to push Europe off for another year. Europe's the part that's getting pushed back. Europe is the part getting pushed back. Was that going to be your, like, um, self-reward for finishing a PhD? Basically, the entire summer is my self-reward for it. So Colorado, California, all of that, too. So, Food Buffs, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please just click on subscribe. And if you haven't reviewed us yet, please write us a review. We read all the reviews, and we're really grateful for them. And check out our Facebook page if you haven't yet, especially if you happen to have any interesting tidbits about the Tudor period that you think other food buffs might be interested in. We would love to hear them. And if you'd like to write into us, write to us at feedback at foodnonfiction.com. Have a great week. Thanks. Bye.